Hi everybody, I'm Jeannie Faulkner and this is Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting and the Power to Change the World, CSP3. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy and Fit Pregnancies, Ask the Labor Nurse. I'm a nurse, a mom, a writer, an activist, a feminist, and now a podcaster. The subject is vast, and there are so many factors that go into health and parenthood, whether that's on a personal, public, or global level. And that's what this podcast is all about, everything I couldn't fit in the book. Today, I'm going to be talking to Sarah Lynch. Sarah works for CARE, which is just about my favorite global humanitarian organization. Her areas of expertise are advocacy, legislation, and global maternal health. And she has a lot of perspective on what it's like for women around the world to deliver babies with far fewer resources than we have here. Sarah is also pregnant for the second time. She has a sweet little boy and is now expecting twins. That just gives us so much to talk about. Second pregnancies, twin pregnancies, what prenatal care and birth planning is like for twins, and the never-ending challenges of working, traveling, and parenting while pregnant. We also get to talk about the maternal health experiences she's seen globally. But let's start with that second pregnancy. When you're pregnant for the second time, you have enough experience that you're not quite as stunned by the physical and emotional changes as you were the first time around. That doesn't mean Mother Nature doesn't have a few curveballs and special plans for you. Each pregnancy is physically different, but many of us go through the same or very similar emotional experiences. Here's what I wrote about that in Chapter 15 of Common Sense Pregnancy. The Second Baby. How to Add Another Kid to Your Life. Among my biggest worries during my second pregnancy were these. I loved my first baby so much that I couldn't imagine I could love the next one as much. I worried my one-year-old would feel like I might if my husband brought home another wife. I imagined her thinking, huh? Wasn't I good enough? You had to bring someone else home? Yeah, I know. It was kind of nutso. My sister screwed my head back on straight by reminding me that having another baby didn't take anything away from my firstborn daughter. Instead, I was giving her a gift, a sibling who would be a witness to her life, a playmate and first friend. Once I got over all my emotional concerns, I realized that my real worries were mostly strategic and practical. The how-to of feeding, bathing, raising, playing with, and affording an additional child. I checked out books from the library like Your Second Child, which provided some excellent tips, and then I learned the same way most mothers do, by trial and error. I watched other mothers and absorbed tricks of the trade. Eventually, having two felt as natural as having one. Later, we added more kids, and again, I felt a bit like you do in the first weeks in a new job. And then I adjusted. So will you. Now, what about twins? This is a bit from Chapter 12. You have twins or your baby is breached. Can you still have a vaginal birth? The pendulum has swung back and forth so many times regarding when women can or can't deliver babies vaginally. For thousands of years, women delivered breech, when the baby is in a position other than head down, and multiple babies vaginally, and most survived. There weren't any other options, so midwives learned techniques for delivering these challenging babies. 
Even as recently as the 1980s and 90s, twins and certain breech babies were routinely delivered vaginally. There were certain qualifying conditions, of course. For instance, twin A, the one closest to the vagina, had to be head down. Breech babies had to be in a frank breech position, butt near the vagina, legs straight up in front of the body, and full term. But sometime in the 1990s, the climate for vaginal deliveries changed so that all twins and breeches were routinely delivered by scheduled C-section. Nowadays, most doctors continue to deliver these babies by C-section, primarily because that's how they were trained, but also because they believe it's the least risky way to go. Breech babies can present specific complications, like a prolapsed umbilical cord which falls into the vagina before the rest of the body, which can cause baby's blood supply to be compressed or the head getting stuck after the body has been delivered. It's issues like these that prevent many doctors from delivering twins vaginally. If twin A is head down but twin B is breech, they worry that even if the first baby is born vaginally, the second one might not move into a good birthing position. Therefore, most doctors won't even attempt a vaginal delivery, even when both babies are in a good birthing position. However, recent studies indicate there's no benefit to routinely doing a C-section for twins, and every surgery puts mom and babies at increased risk for other complications. So, that's a lot to talk about today. Let's get Sarah Lynch on the phone. Let's give her a call now. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Sarah is pregnant with twins. How many weeks now? I'm guessing 33? You are right. 33 wow. weeks. Yeah. Wow. How are yeah. you? I feel really good, actually. I mean, of course, there's the the growing pains, so yeah. to speak. Um, but, you know, I just, I'm so grateful to be this far along and um, to, you know, still be up and active and moving and... <laughs> and, and at work, if I'm and not at mistaken. Work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Which gives me a good opportunity to tell listeners who Sarah is. This is Sarah Lynch, and she and I have known each other for, I don't know, several years now. Um, yeah. Because both of us are associated with CARE. Sarah is the Senior Director of Global Policy Initiatives for CARE's Policy and Advocacy Unit. She oversees the strategy and implementation of cross-cutting initiatives to further connect our U.S. government-specific advocacy work to our global advocacy work. Sarah is responsible for overall management of the Learning Tours Program, the Citizen Advocacy Program, and the Care Action Network, the Women and Girls Lead Global Program, and plays a key role in developing CARE's contribution to new and existing opportunities with partners. Whoa, girl. <laughs> We're obviously understaffed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And she's 33 weeks pregnant with twins doing that big, big job. Yeah, thanks, Jeannie. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I've, I feel like I have the best job in the world, um, you know, working at CARE, which, um, you know, is an incredible organization. We for those who don't know, work in almost 90 countries around the world, helping to uh, families to lift themselves out of poverty. And um, there, you know, it's just an incredible network of people that um, take part in our mission. And so I can't thank you enough for being a, such a big part of that. Um, and, and I get to, you know, look at both, um, 
U.S. interests in in development work and how we can leverage them and um, also think about the programmatic side and, and how uh, we can improve upon some of our strategies when it comes to policy and advocacy. Because as we know, a lot of the underlying causes of poverty really are due to either lack of implementation of policies or just bad policies uh, across the board. So um, it's um, it's really a fascinating job and, you know, high learning curve every day. And um, I really feel quite uh, privileged to be a part of it. Well, me too, my small part. So for those who don't know, um, you've probably heard of CARE and you take it back to thinking about CARE packages. And that is some of the earliest work that CARE, a global humanitarian organization, actually ever did. And they've gone from that point back in the 40s, correct? Uh, yeah, we're actually celebrating our 70th anniversary uh, this Thanksgiving. Wow, wow. So yeah. 70 years ago, yep. it started with sending care packages of small foods and, and supplies to um, World War II victims in Europe. And it's grown to the point where they are now. And so, you know, when there's a, a national or international, I should say, disaster, and you see all of the thousands to millions of people who are affected, and you look past that and you see the the, F, the humanitarian efforts that are being made to put up shelter, to provide water, basic medical care, it's organizations like CARE um, who are doing that work. So Sarah and I met because I got interested in CARE's political side, where um, she was talking about just a minute ago. Tell me a little, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So um, we know that, you know, Americans are a generous um, uh, group of people and um, are very invested in uh, our global development work uh, and global stability, of course. Um, But we hear time and time again from members of Congress and policymakers that this just isn't an issue that they can prioritize because people back home don't make it a priority. And so what we're trying to do is um, connect those people, those constituents, uh, those Americans to the right policymakers to say, actually, we do want you to make this a priority. And that's um, where people like Eugenie have been so influential just by talking about these issues, by um, using your own platforms to connect with other influential people in your community or directly with your policymakers to say, you know, this is something that we all need to be thinking about in terms of, um, you know, helping and doing our part. Yeah, absolutely. I um, often say when I'm talking to people at CARE that the answer to the question, does CARE do any work here in the United States? You know, you often get that. So, you know, why should we be investing in looking abroad so far, you know, when we have our own troubles here in the United States? And my answer to that question is that yes, CARE does work um, and does really valuable work here in the United States because you guys train people like me how to be effective citizens. Seriously, from being, you know, politically interested but no more uh, active than being a voter to the point where with people with CARE, I've sat in my representatives, my congressmen and senators' offices to discuss issues that are important to us Um, in Washington, D.C., and here in Oregon, and most people don't get that chance. CARE's done that for people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, we we have such a unique opportunity as Americans to to have that direct access, and it's, 
it's not utilized enough. Um, and, and so I think, um, it's important to, for everybody to know, no matter what issues you're passionate about that, you know, we have the right to speak up and to use the media and, um, to use, um, um, our, you know, other platforms to be able to, you know, talk about the things that we care about and the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So mm-hmm. the more we do that, um, the more, uh, change we can see. And, and it's, you know, it's easy to be, um, overwhelmed by the slew of issues that are, um, facing us. But, um, it's important, I think, when you have, um, those kinds of convictions to be able to exercise your, your right to not only vote, your uh, the way that you you know that you want to vote, but also um, to make the persuasive arguments with people that are representing you in Congress. Yeah. Uh, because what's amazing to me is to learn the reach that each of our policymakers have into other countries, um, in countries sometimes they've never been to before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important um, for us to be able to say, if you're representing me, this is something that's important to me, and I want you to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really fortunate here in Oregon that my senators and congressmen are overwhelmingly supportive of any issue I bring to them, you know, that's a hallmark from care. <laughs> and it's that's great. They're great. They're very, very supportive. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about you and the babies a little bit more. Great. My favorite yeah. topic. Yeah, yeah, mine too. <laughs> yeah. So the unique thing about you is that um, not only are you having twins, but this is your second pregnancy. And, you know, I think that it's really important for moms of firsts to hear from more experienced moms about what to what they should look forward to, what their challenges are, and what's different about the second. So... What do you think? What do you have to say about that? Well, it's, you know, of course, it's so top of mind. I, you know, as I joke, it's my favorite topic. But, you know, of course, when your body is physically changing every day um, and your family life and work life is about to change so dramatically, it's hard not to be consumed by, um, you know, by, uh, you know, what's about to come. But um, but honestly, the second time around, even with twins, which we were not expecting, um, it is a little bit easier. Um, and, you know, you can start to put things in perspective a little bit because uh, you've been through it once before and, and, you, and you realize um, all of the, the challenges that come with it. But it's just that fear of the unknown is is a little less. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I certainly, um, uh, you know, we had a tough time conceiving even our first child uh, and I've I lost two babies before that. So, um, you know, I empathize and, and certainly don't want to make it sound like it's any, um, you know, less, uh, you know, hard to, to anticipate the unknown. But once you've been through it, you start to realize um, what to expect and, and how to manage um, that uncertainty in a different type of way. Yeah. Um, the the and, uncertainty and becomes familiar. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's that's right. And you that's right. and you find out, oh, OK. I don't necessarily know what's going to happen going forward, but yeah, I'm okay. And you start to, you realize um, where your support groups are, right? Or, or your touchstones mm-hmm. and the people that you know you can vent to or mm-hmm. um, which, you know, even which nurses in your within your practice or which midwives within your practice, you know, are the are the best to call on at different points and throughout the pregnancy. You just, you, you have some of that experience, Um you know, the things to tell your favorite aunt versus, you know, <laughs> the ones not to tell your mm-hmm. favorite aunt yeah. um, that get people um, 
you know, worked up um, versus like, giving you that support that you need. Yeah, yeah. How does this pregnancy feel um, physically? Well, it's funny, and you may even hear it in my voice. I, I've had a, a harder time breathing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's just... Um, it actually started somewhat early, um, probably around even the 20 week mark, I realized, and I have to often have to give, you know, presentations and things, but, um, so maybe it's a little different for me, but it, it, you know, they're, you know, I read in one of the books that this was, it's almost like, you know, an octopus in your stomach when you have eight limbs, (laughs) right? (laughs) Two, two babies and eight limbs. Yeah. Um, you know, and and all those feet have access. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, certainly my, my lungs and my diaphragm, I, I I feel like it's the most obvious to me, um, in terms of some of those, um, pains. I've also just, just started in the last week, you know, much indigestion in a way I've never had before. So I think all of it's quite natural, but, um, but certainly the physical, um, um, you know, impact of having two babies, uh, is definitely a challenge. You know, I'm already bigger than I was full term with my son. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. It kind of is. Yeah, it kind of is. And then you will go from having one child to having three. So how, what's different about anticipating that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's funny. I mean, you know, first of all, I thought I could get good use out of all my hand-me-downs, but I actually am out, you know, on listservs looking for another car seat and another <laughs> uh, crib and things of that nature. Um, so there's a, a little bit more to do to get prepared. It's almost like the first time again. Um, and then, um, of course, just even thinking about, um, you know, the daycare situation and, you know, all the things that go into that. It's, um, you know, some of our choices have been forced, unfortunately, just financially, it's hard to um, think about that for three children when we were really only prepared for two. Um, uh, our, you know, our friends and family are all over the country. Our, my husband's parents and mine are are not nearby. So just even thinking about, you know, how do you get, uh, on a plane when you're outnumbered, (laughs) you've got three kids instead of two, Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you know, it's some of those things that are a little bit jarring, but, um, but overall we're, you know, of course, we're we're all in at this point. We're quite excited, and my son is two and a half, and um, you know he's just been really sweet, and I'm just soaking it up because I know once these two arrive, his little world's going to be turned upside down. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, and I know but, that that when I was pregnant with my second one, some of the um, physical issues that were different were that I I showed earlier. You know, it was obvious that I was pregnant earlier. Um, yep. I did not have as many aches and pains. It's almost as if everything already kind of got stretched out and it was ready to go for baby number two. Um, and yep. then of course I anticipated and had a much shorter labor. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that's great. Do you, can you share a little bit of your birth plan? With yeah, us? sure. Yeah. Um, I, um, you know, I, I, I hope to be able to, to deliver naturally. Um, but I've learned that of course, from my experience and from my friends and and my cousins and others who've uh, also been delivering in the last few years, (laughs) that there of course is never a a true birth plan, right? Um, it's not in our hands. And so the more we become, um, 
you know, real adamant about the way we want to see it go, the harder it is when it doesn't go our way. So I, I always try to, you know, mentally prepare for what I think I can do and what I want to do, but sort of be open to the fact that, um, um, you know, again, we're quite fortunate, uh, to have, uh, quality care in this country and, you know, to lean on those, uh, providers to be able to give us the best advice with twins, of course, you know, there's a higher risk, um, of a complication. So, um, I've had to wrap my head around what it would mean if I, if I, you know, wanted to get a C-section or, um, if I had to get a C-section, but, um, ideally, um, I could, um, deliver naturally the last, um, ultrasound I had, one of the babies did turn. So unfortunately, um, uh, that might not be possible, but, um, there, I still have a little bit of time. So I'm hoping that they're, they both, um, our head down and, and we can plan, um, you know, to, to go in when they're ready. But they doctors did tell me they won't let me go past 38 weeks, which I think is pretty common for, for twins. So, um, I have a December. Did, did they 8th. tell you why? Um, yeah, they talked a bit about, um, just the, both the strain on my body and on, on the twins. Um, they said twins are actually considered full term around 35 weeks. Um, so meaning that they can, they have a, you know, have a better chance of, um, um, living outside of your body. Mm -hmm. Um, and so anything after 35 weeks, you know, is considered, um, safe and in the, uh, risks for my body and, and for them in terms of being growing, um, past 38 weeks, it's, they just, they, they told me they prefer that I go before then. Yeah. So, well, you um, probably will. And when you reach that point, if you want to talk it through at all, you know, I'm available for that. Thank you. Jean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. Said, I, you said a couple of things that are, um, you know, like red flags for me. One is, um, they won't let you. And I always want to remind women that they're not in charge of you and you can choose, you make that choice, you know, You're right. Yeah. You're right. You make yep. that choice. And then the other thing is that, um, if you're doing perfectly fine at 38 weeks and you're not having any strain on your body and the babies look great at that point, it might be a wise choice to just reevaluate. Yeah, I, I feel good. The babies are good. Let's see what happens from here. I think you're right. And, and, and that's exactly actually what happened last time with my son. Um, I had, I have a, a pelvic floor prolapse. So mm -hmm. I was actually dilated, if you can imagine, all the way up to like a five. Sure. Um, I've seen for, that. Yeah. And so the concern, of course, at that point was, you know, we just want you to be in a quote unquote controlled environment. We don't want you on the subway downtown and then all of a sudden <laughs> go into labor because it'll go probably very quickly. Yeah. Um, so they were saying, let's, let's plan to have you come in on an, you know, on this date. And I said, well, that makes sense to me. And then that date came and I said, you know what, <laughs> I'm only 20 minutes from the hospital. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to stay close and not get induced, not go in, not do anything and wait and let the baby decide. Um, so I canceled the appointment and, um, sure enough, my son came, I think it was like four days later, but on his own. And it, yeah. to me, that, that made such, the dif such a difference. It does make a difference. The difference between an induced labor and a spontaneous labor, especially for a first-time mom, can be the difference of hours of contractions. Because there's That's so right. much important finish work to be done 
you know, in the last days uh, of, of a pregnancy. And I think that we're, we're starting to look at those, you know, that last week or two. We used to think of their, well, you know, they're fine. We don't need, you know, 38, 39 weeks, no biggie. And now we're realizing that, oh, yeah, we really do have an awful lot of NICU admissions in this country um, associated with pulling our babies out a little early. And we know that the final work that happens on the lungs, the heart, the neurosystem, you know, the whole, the whole baby, a lot of it happens in the last week. So why not leave them in there? Mm-hmm. Just exactly. leave them alone. Let them well, do and it. I, and I think labor goes better when it's led by the baby. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, the cervix um, has more time to get ripe and in a good position and thin out so that once you start labor, all you got to do is dilate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk shop about that when you get a little closer. If yeah, you want to. yeah, 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 exactly. So the exact, and I think, you know, I would, I would do the same, obviously, like, like, like I said, in terms of a plan, you know, there's, there's that plan, you know, looking at the 35 to 38 week window. But, um, but as you said, you know, of course, we, we're going to take it day by day and yeah. see how we're, how we're doing. Yeah. So um, yesterday, I was watching a TED talk by a friend of mine, Jessica Shortall. Um, she, uh, used to be, she used to work with Tom's and now she works with the LGBTQT community in Texas, but she gave this brilliant Ted talk yesterday about why it's time to have paid maternity leave here in the United States. Mm. And, um, if you have a chance to, to find that online, it's really, oh my goodness, I haven't ever heard anybody make that case quite as acutely. Um, but I'm curious, how much time will you get to take off? And can, are you comfortable talking about your maternity leave plans a little? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I um, I plan to take well, I plan to take as much time as I need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, like, again, it sort of goes back to who's in control. I think it's important for folks to feel um, empowered um, to speak up to you know, to, to your employers to say, to explain why you need what you need. Cause mm-hmm. I think in this country in particular, um, you know, oftentimes you'll find, um, some, um, you know, shortcomings in, in different policies, but, um, regardless, um, I, I'll be taking, um, it's like a short term disability, which is five weeks and then a six weeks of paid maternity leave. So that's, um, almost three months. And then I'll be using my vacation time after that. So I'm hoping I can take up to, um, uh, about four months of leave. Mm -hmm. And my husband, um, just started at a new company and they just changed their paternity leave, which is, um, great. And that they are also offering three months of paid leave. So will he take that after you're done? What I think we're going to do actually is split his time mm-hmm. um, because uh, I'll certainly need the help in the beginning. Sure. Um, but then, yeah, um, to um, talk, you know, to have him split some of that time um, over a six month period um, so that we can have some some coverage um, and also some sense of normalcy for my son, because mm-hmm. I don't want both of us, you know, out straight. Right, right. <laughs> um, but be able to be around to help. Um, and, and certainly we've got friends and family who are, um, going to take some time to be with us at different points as well. So we'll hopefully have, um, yeah, a a good start. So your job involves quite a lot of travel. 
Yes. What's it been like to be pregnant with twins, working that big job of yours, and traveling? You know, with a toddler at home and a husband, and how are, how is that for you? Well, thankfully, you know, my my husband um, is very supportive, and so um, you know he and he does a you know a great job. We both work hard to make sure there's you know equity between us because he too has a lot of demands. He's out of town actually this week, um, but I think. Um, you know, for me, um, well, first it's about packing light because <laughs> you realize <laughs> with uh, air travel these days, anything goes. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you're tired and exhausted and, um, you know, it's 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 easier to wear the same black dress with a different scarf uh, mm-hmm. each day than, uh, <laughs> than lug around big suitcases and such. Um, so um, on the practical side, that's definitely... Um, important. But, um, but yeah, in terms of, um, you know, my own health and, you know, just sort of watching my fatigue and all of those things, you know, I actually do, um, you know, try to give myself a little bit more time typically with, you know, with a young child at home, I'm in and out. I do just what I need to do and come back home. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I've opted not to take the red eye, for example, and stay a night in the hotel and come home the next day just to give myself a little bit of, of that. Yeah. rest, um, that's needed. You can also get so dehydrated when you're traveling, um, uh, particularly, you know, air travel. So, um, just, you know, being more thoughtful about that and eating well, drinking well, and keeping your, giving yourself enough rest. It's, it's important. Have you done any international travel during this pregnancy? Um, yes, I did early though, only early on. And, um, again, because of my history and because it's twins and because of my age, you know, <laughs> they make you feel like you're geriatric, uh, if you're over 35. How old are um, you, Sarah? Do you mind telling? <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. Um, no, yeah, I'm 37. Oh, yeah. You're young. You're I'm young. young. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm See, so that's high. another thing that they, they tell you. you know, they exactly. They treat you like... You're geriatric, except you're young. Exactly. You're not. Geriatric. Of course not. You're 37 and you're healthy and yeah. Exactly. And my yeah. doctors, you know, she actually gave birth at 42. So mm-hmm. luckily, you know, she, she laughs along with me. But um, but the, anyway, the point is, is that they they asked, you know, the doctors suggested that I um, limit international travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I didn't travel as much this time around, just in the very beginning, and then. But um, with my son, I did do more trips um, and the other pregnancies I had. I also was was traveling quite a bit. I actually, you know, again, I just sort of listened to my body, right? I, I felt okay, so I went. Um, but um, uh, it's just being, you know, sensitive to some of those some of those issues around, again, um, blood flow and <laughs> um, hydration and all of those yeah. things. Yeah. But otherwise, it's you know, it's it's good to continue in my mind, my routine, because then, um, you know, I think it's, it's easy to, um, to get, you know, sort of waylaid by all the aches and pains when you're, when you're just home and (laughs) it's somehow you don't think about any of it when you're out busy and doing your thing. Right. Right. Um, so I wanted, excuse me, (laughs) I've got the family cold. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, well. <laughs> so I wanted to um, talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of maternal health for women overseas. And I wanted to preface that question with telling a little bit about my introduction to care and the 
the learning tour that you guys gave me to go to Peru. Mm -hmm. And this was um, many years ago. I want to say it was like 2007 or 8 or it was in there sometime. And I was working for um, Fit Pregnancy Magazine as a, a freelance writer. And I was writing a column for them, Ask the Labor Nurse. And um, one day I was, I had also just come home from work at the hospital where I had done, you know, several shifts probably as a labor nurse. And I know that one of those shifts, I was in the operating room with a woman who was having a huge complication. Um, we were hanging blood on her and it was one of those days in the hospital where you knew you were probably saving lives. And then I came home and I'm answering email and I'm putting on my, you know, writer job hat. And I looked up and, um, there was a Today Show segment about care, and it really intrigued me. Hmm. And I ended up sending an email right then to Sarah Moser, who was the communications manager at the time for care. That's right. And, and still I, is. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, I'm a journalist and a nurse. How can I help? And one thing led hmm. to another. And pretty soon I was going to um, Lima, Ayacucho, and Vilcashuaman on a learning tour with care. That's Peru. Um, to write about it for my magazine. And what I saw there was some remarkable um, work. They were varying types of hospitals. Lima, of course, the big city, modern hospitals. And then in Ayacucho, uh, a regional health center that was very well outfitted, but certainly would be considered very basic, rural, and maybe even primitive by American standards, and mm -hmm. then we went to um, up into the mountains to Vilcashuaman, where there was a small health center, very, very small. Um, and at each of these places, they had been implementing some remarkable changes over the last five years with CARES help that brought the maternal mortality rate in Peru down 75% in five years. And I got to go and report on that and just and write about what those simple changes were. And some of the ones that really impressed me were the tiniest little things, um, like you know being in a regional healthcare center in, in Peru, it was a big deal that the sheets weren't white. That's right, because that is the color of death. And so you know, they changed the color of the sheets. And women wanted to be called by name, and it was just their medical culture habit to call the patients by chart number or by a number. And that offended. Um, there were some language barriers. There were um, staff members were being tossed into you know, high-stress labor and delivery situations, and it wasn't their department, and they were not trained. You know, They may have been somebody who worked with old people, and they had no experience. So there was training provided, and it was standard training across the country so that if a pro healthcare provider did a shift at one hospital and then the next day he went to a different hospital, he could be sure that they would be following the same standards. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind. But with that context, I'm hoping you'll talk a little bit about some of the positive and some of the challenging aspects you see in maternal health, labor and delivery overseas. Yeah, sure. I'm so glad you got to see the work in Peru. It's just, it's so important and we're learning from it all the time. I mean, there, there are things that, um, that can be replicated, um, from that experience, but, um, 
you know, still 99% of maternal deaths occur in the developing world. And it, um, you know, I'll never forget, um, being in Sierra Leone and, um, meeting a, 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 a woman who was about to, uh, you know, about to deliver, she was still pregnant. And I just, you know, my first reaction when I saw her was, you know, congratulations, you must be excited. And, um, of course, imposing my own (laughs) set of values on that. And she, she basically looked at me and said, you know, she feels like she had one foot in the grave, um, through interpretation. That's what she said to me. And I, and so I sat with her and we talked about it and, you know, in her, village and her, uh, her experience and, and other women that came before her, um, you basically had a 50, 50 chance of surviving. Um, yeah. and so, um, you know, it's not something that, uh, is often celebrated. In fact, many women, um, get pregnant and are very, very scared. Um, yeah. and so thinking about that and meeting people where they are, um, is, it's important. And in Peru, what, we did is, you know, we looked at what, what is the ultimate goal? The, 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 the thought was if we could get more women to deliver in a facility, they would have a better chance of surviving because all women have a chance of having a complicated pregnancy or, you know, have needing emergency obstetric care. Um, and so we looked at some of the barriers to getting women to come into the hospital. Um, and there, you're right. There were, you know, there was a, a language issue. There was just a cultural uh, insensitivity, um, in a facility based, uh, delivery than in the village. Um, and so thinking about that, um, specific for that culture, um, the Quechua people, um, as you said, you know, it, it, just by changing those sheets to be, you know, just having pink sheets instead of white sheets, (laughs) um, saved saved thousands of lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just about um, making people feel comfortable, making people understand, um, what, you know, what was about to happen. So having people speak in their own language, um, giving them options. A lot of, um, women in the Quechua community, uh, are used to giving birth standing up. they they feel strongly about having both feet planted firmly on the ground and being in touch with the ground. And, and so, um, the idea of delivering in a bed, um, just was so foreign to them. So giving them the, um, the support they needed to be, uh, delivering standing up, um, it's just an easy fix. Um, and yet enabled them to, um, be in this, uh, a safe hospital setting. If they needed any emergency care, they could access it. And, um, and as I said, you know, the thousands of lives were saved and yeah. maternal mortality rates, um, changed dramatically. So they're so, right about that they are going to have a better birth standing up because they're in a better pelvic position and they can use the power of their legs. You know, it's for them. I think that it's probably, you know, an intellectual uh, and cultural construct that is basically spiritual. You want to be in touch with mother earth when you're giving your baby, but it's also physical and natural and a way better birthing position. And what, when I was in, um, the little, health center in Vilkashwaman, I was um, speaking with a doctor there who took us into their delivery room and he showed us this homemade but beautifully made birthing table chair squat bar contraption. And it was designed so that the woman could be standing feet on the ground, but she was also um, able to hold on to something. Her husband was able to sit behind her and there was a little notch in the bench 
cut out for him to do that so that he could support her. And um, in the event that they needed to change her position or do something emergency, uh, they could do that quickly and easily using that contraption. It was brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And not that hard to do. It, what was great about that moment was that the male doctor who was giving me the tour was more than willing to get on that bed, put his feet in the stirrups, show me how to squat. It was awesome. Oh, that's fun. That's <laughs> that great. was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, I think, you know, and CARE's role in all of that is really just, again, being that advocate, right? Connecting the community to those who are making the decisions um, yeah. in facilities and at the policy level. Um, to be able to to be um, um, you know helpful in finding those kinds of solutions. Um, so um, you know we we did we worked on that project um, with partners um, including Columbia University here in the U.S. in New York um, to be able to um, think about you know again what the goals are and how to get there. And sometimes it's not about just building a facility, it's, again, looking at the barriers to accessing a facility. And I think that's um, something that we've, we've learned and, and been, like I said, applying in different contexts throughout, throughout the world. And we've seen um, some real success. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and in fact, um, even here in the U.S., there's a, there's a new piece of legislation called the Reach Every Mother and Child Act, um, that would fundamentally change uh, how we approach development, particularly around maternal health, um, by looking at some of those um, um, ways in which we could we know work some mm -hmm. mit some mitigation, um, uh, uh, you know, in in different uh, approaches that are both contextually and culturally appropriate, but um, thinking about ways that we can be thinking uh, changing the um, the and improving uh, maternal health for people around the world. So, is that um, is that legislation that people should be watching for now, in case they want to talk to their congressman or senator about it? Absolutely, yeah. It's in both the House and the Senate. There's a bill. It's called the Reach Every Mother and Child Act, um, and um, it's we were looking for co-sponsors at this, you know, at this very moment. Um, there's a really, we've enjoyed a lot of bipartisan support, which is fantastic. Um, and, um, we're, um, working daily and with coalition partners and other NGO partners to make sure that this is a bill that gets traction in this Congress. Great. Yeah. It's smart. You have, um, a lot of support from Republicans and Democrats. And then if, <clears throat> excuse me again, if this uh, bill becomes a law, would it provide more robust financing for maternal health um, outreach and programs, primarily in Africa? Am I correct? It's actually it's it's worldwide, um, and you know the, it would it would only it would improve how we provide life saving assistance by improving the coordination and tracking results, but it also um, improves the type of assistance we provide. So ensuring women and children um, um, who are in need, um, the, the cost-effective interventions, such as vaccines or micronutrients, um, access to family planning services, things that we know are proven to um, help, uh, help save lives. Yeah. And, um, uh, with you know some of the research that's been done, they think that this approach could 
actually work to save the lives of over 15 million children and 600,000 women by 2020. Uh, if we just changed the way that we, um, um, you know, implement our own policies in different countries. Right. Ooh. All right. People should be watching for that. Well, Sarah, you and I have talked a good long time and I just want to ask you two more quick questions that I like to ask everybody. Sure. I think you've pretty much described the answer to this first one, which is tell our listeners where you are in your family life and in your life as a mom. Well, um, you know, I think there's something that comes over you in the later stages of, of pregnancy where there's sort of a Zen quality, right? There's, so I think about sort of that peace within me that, you know, I think about what I'm, what I'm about to embark on and how, again, how lucky and fortunate we are to be uh, in the position we're in. Um, but truly right now, I think of myself as, um, a, you know, a vessel for two new lives that are about to be welcomed into the world, which is just really incredible um, at all levels. Um, and, you know, and I'm just sort of trusting the fact that I am exactly where I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, having, you know, sort of faith in, in the fact that, um, um, you know, this was, this is, you know, both a place um, for me and my husband and, you know, in an exciting time for us to be growing our family. And then also thinking about, you know, how I can um, c- continue to contribute to the, the work that I do. Um, and particularly in the maternal health space, you know, it's just one pillar of CARE's work, but it's a very important one and sort of uh, foundational to, um, everything that we do. Um, but, and so, and so in many ways, you know, it's, it's kind of, a um, of course a busy time, you know, lots of change, tons of anticipation, but there's something about just being in that home stretch that I I just sort of have this, um, you know, it'll all work out kind of (laughs) quality going on. (laughs) So then my other question is, Part of what I want to do with this podcast is I want to open up conversations for all moms, the ones who are experienced, the ones who have adult children, and the ones who are brand new to this. And so if you had something to say to a first-time pregnant mom, what would you want her to know? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, Well, I think, um, I guess that the best is yet to come. Mm. You know, I think um, so many of my peers and friends, you know, we've had upwards of 20 years of, of doing our own thing, right, as as young adults. Um, and uh, it can feel like, you know, we're very focused on our careers or focused on our families or focused on, um, you know, our own uh our own, what's immediately in front of us. And then once you sort of expand that world (laughs) to be a mother to a a child, um, it's just, it's kind of amazing. Um, And and your, everybody of course is, um, takes a different path. But I think uh, for all of us as moms to know that, um, you know, your world is your, your fantastic, awesome, wonderful world is only going to get better. (laughs) It's only going to expand. It's kind of, it blows your mind a little bit, but, um, but it's, it's possible. And, 
and really fun and gives you new ways to think about, you know, your contributions to the world. Um, and so, um, you know, I just think, again, for those of us who are fortunate enough to, you know, to, uh, um, bring healthy babies into the world, um, and, you know, provide for them. Um, I think it's an incredible experience, but I, you know, it's hard knowing that, um, for so many women around the world, it's, it can be, as I said, you know, a, a very scary experience. So for, for all of us to embrace that and to think about ways that we can support each other, um, I think is really important. I couldn't agree more. Well, Sarah, thank you for talking to us today. I hope thank you, Janie, as well. Thank you, and congratulations again on the book and the podcast. We're all grateful. Well, thank you. I'll be in touch soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my Mama said. Mama said, Mama said. I went walking. My guest today was Sarah Lynch. Senior Director of Global Policy Initiatives for CARE's Policy and Advocacy Unit. You can learn more about CARE's work at care.org. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, and everywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work on my website, genefaulkner.com. If you have questions, email me, gene at genefaulkner.com. Thanks for joining me on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, and please subscribe, share, and leave us a rating on iTunes if you feel so inclined. Thanks for joining me, and let's keep talking. Like this, my mama said.